Amos chapter 9 from verse 11, and it's on page 925 in the Church Bibles. That's 925 in the Bibles. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them says the Lord your God. We're going to open up Amos chapter 9 again, and it's on page 924 in the Church Bible. We've had the first part of the reading, which is the second part of the chapter, read out. But we're now going to have the second part of the reading, which is the first part of the chapter, which is verses 1 to 10. So let's hear God's word together, page 1024. For well worth having open one of these church Bibles or one that you may have brought along with you just to, to check that what I'm saying is what God is saying, which is the most important thing. Let's hear God's word. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I'll command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds the lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the water of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you, Israelites, the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines from Kaphtor, the Arameans from Kit. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, 
declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for your word. Please speak in power by your spirit and may we listen to what you have to say and obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do God's people have a future? It's a good question for us to think about at any time in history. Maybe you read articles in newspapers or on blogs or watch documentaries that seem to suggest that the church is in decline, managed decline, and within a number of generations, there will be no more. Certainly that's the way you would get the impression from what Christianity and how Christianity is referred to in the wider media. It seems like it's just going down, 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 down. And yet, despite the fact that church buildings are closing, we've already said that in previous weeks, Despite the fact that organised religion may be on the wane, I think in the last few years I've never seen people more open spiritually to thinking about big, eternal God kinds of matters. Uh, We heard last week about how the Cardiff uh, CU Mission uh, Week, Events Week, went over a hundred crowding into the Woodville pub every day asking big questions of life. Wow, amazing! And... uh, and that's the story that could be retold. It was told in Southampton by Haley, having uh, spoken down there. And events weeks all over the UK as students are gathering, disillusioned with the answers that our secular culture are offering and saying they need to believe. Oh, maybe there's more life than we think. We need to be cautious about being too quick to write off God's people. Do God's people have a future? We're at the last stage of our journey through the book of Amos. Thank you so much for being with us over the last uh, couple of months. It has been a challenging terrain to go through, to listen to, to study in small groups, to, to hear on Sundays, I'm quite sure. Uh, but I pray and hope that today we will see a massively bright light at the end of the tunnel that we've been going through. Let me remind you of what we've been seeing for the first couple of chapters, Oracles Against the Nations. That tornado of judgment sweeping around all the nations of the world, around the people of Israel who were in the north, who Amos from the south was speaking to. Then in the middle uh, section of the book we had uh, oracles against Israel. And uh, that great climax in the middle of that as God challenges his people from being complacent and uh, hypocritical and um, uh, from being proud and uh, he, he organises his material in such a way that our eyes are focused into the middle of the double cheeseburger. And right at the heart of it is his revelation that the Lord is his name. He is the one who we've turned from. Deal with him. Don't be proud on how well you dress, how smart you look, the fact that you know when to stand up or sit down in a service. Deal with him. Oracles, kind of words against Israel. And then in the last couple of chapters we get visions against Israel. And we had uh, two visions that described God's mercy, a vision of locusts coming through and a vision of a fire. Amos pleads to God that these would stop and God stops and relents. He's got a mercy. 
But he's also a God who sends judgment, which is why he uh, reveals himself in, and says, just like a plumb line, an engineer's line, which checks when a building is out of line, well, so too I'm going to check whether God's people are out of line. And if they are, and they are, judgment's coming. And a fruit bowl. You can have lovely fruit. And uh, it looks beautiful, but just wait a week or two, go on holiday, come back to that same fruit bowl, flies, rot. It's coming, it's a matter of time. And the key thing, the key distinguishing mark that determines whether you're someone who faces God's judgment or who receives his mercy is what? It's how we deal with his word. Do we reject his word? Or do we listen to his word and live his word and respond to his word? Because if we don't, If we close the book on God, he'll take the book away and he will give a famine of the word of God for the people. That's what we saw last week and what a devastating reality that is. Well, today we're seeing a couple of pictures, more lessons to learn for Israel in the 8th century BC and absolutely for us to learn today. And here's our first lesson. Be warned of God's devastating judgment. That's in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 9. Be warned. It's a warning. We'll begin with warning of God's devastating judgment. Um, We've seen lots of different things that the people are hiding behind, trying to find their security here. In 10 verses, God gives layer upon layer through Amos of judgment that give a terrifying picture for the people. And as I said in previous weeks, it doesn't give me pleasure to say this, but I think it's my responsibility to say this as your pastor, and I need to pass on the truth as I've been given it from God. And uh, let's see what will happen in the future according to uh, 8th century BC Israel. Firstly, the temple will be destroyed. This is in verse 1. Uh, have a look down. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left are killed by the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Now I say the temple, we may be put inverted commas, because it wasn't the temple in Jerusalem that's being spoken of. This is the, the temple or the kind of shrine religious centre in Bethel. So um, uh, if you remember, uh, Amos is from the south, he's speaking to the north, and on a number of occasions he's described the fact that God is going to judge that religious shrine, that centre in Bethel. Have a look down, uh, you'll see this on the screen. This is uh, Amos 3, 14 and Amos 5, verse 5. On that day I will punish Israel for her sins. I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Or again in chapter 5, verse 5, Bethel will be reduced to nothing. So the main temple was in Jerusalem, but there was a kind of a, a mini temple, a pseudo temple, a shrine in Bethel, a religious centre trying to be a bit like Jerusalem. And God is going to knock it down, completely destroyed. Now, um, previously, we've been told that God used different means to bring his judgment. He used the locusts to bring judgment or to threaten it. He used fire to threaten judgment. He talked about a plumb line. He talked about the rotten fruit. Here, he's not going to use a means. He's going to do it himself. Have a look down. He says, strike the top of the temple so that the thresholds shake. He's going to do it. He's going to destroy this pseudo-temple from top to bottom. The top of the mound, the top of the, the, the altar and the pillars will be knocked and it will crumble down. Remind us of another temple destroyed from top to bottom as God's judgment comes on the temple in Jerusalem as Jesus dies on the cross. The temple curtain ripped from top 
to bottom. It reminds me, certainly when the, the temple falls down, all the worship is inside a, a, a loss, a bit like how Samson was used by God to bring judgment on the Philistines, pushing the pillars apart and down it came. Judgment. The temple, you see, was the place of false trust. The people in Israel, in the north, they had Bethel. They may not have been the perfect people, but they had Bethel. They had their religious shrine that they went to. And they pat themselves on the back and thought, well, phew, thank goodness that we are us. Thank goodness that we're these people, these chosen, these wonderful people of God. We've got the temple. We're going to be fine. Now the temple's going down. I don't think we have a direct equivalent to a temple that we hold on to, but there are certainly things that we think, oh, we're going to be fine because we have this. We have our... Religious practices, perhaps. Maybe, for you, it's, it's you've got a lovely house. You think, well, loads of stuff is happening in our world, but I've got, a, I've got a good house to live in. He can take a house away. I've got my health. I may not be the perfect person, but at least I've got my health. Well, he can take your health away. Or we've got prosperity. We've got money in the bank. He can, thank you very much. You know, be very warned of God's devastating judgment. When you're trusting in something, and that is your kind of number one, that's your God, be prepared for that to potentially be prized out of your hands. He'll take it away if he needs to. And at that point, there will be nowhere to hide. Not one will get away, none will escape, it says at the end of verse one. Let me read verse two. See as I read verse two, does this ring any bells? I know lots of you are quite new to Christianity, it's lovely that you're here. Some of you have been following Jesus and reading the Bible for years. See whether these words ring any bells to other parts of the Bible. Okay, Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. They climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, there I'll hunt them down. Though they hide uh, from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I'll command my serpent. You see, everywhere you go, God will find you. I think... It's deliberately written to be a bit of a kind of a, a play on Psalm 139. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, get up, crack of dawn, go to the far side of the sea, wherever I go in this world, you'll find me. And normally we read Psalm 139 as what great news is that? You never need be alone. You may find yourself on your own. Maybe you're here. You don't know many people at church. Maybe you're here in the UK. You have to be here in the UK. You've fled somewhere else and you want to find somewhere to, to be safe. Well, you may feel a bit alone, but God knows you're here. Miles from family, wherever you go, top of the mountain, bottom of the sea, God will find you. Great news. Unless you're running from God. Unless you're playing hide and seek from God. And if you're playing hide and seek from God, I have to tell you, friends, that's a foolish thing to do. Hide and seek from God? The God who made the heavens? The God who made the earth, whose presence fills the world. You'll never beat God at hide and seek. He'll find you wherever you go. There'll be nowhere to hide. <laughs> Look at that, verse 3. Though they hide themselves at the top of Mount Carmel. Again, if you have studied the Bible at all, Mount Carmel was a famous place in the history of Israel. There was a great conflict between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. At the top of Mount Carmel. And uh, Amos is suggesting people are trying to run up to the top of Mount Carmel as if God doesn't know how to get to the top of Mount Carmel. He knows about the top of Mount Carmel, Israel. He's, he's been there before and he's brought judgment there before. There's no way to escape. I know, go down to the bottom of the sea like Jonah. Only with Jonah, of course, when Jonah goes to the bottom of the sea, he gets rescued by a massive great big fish. 
If you hide in the bottom of the sea to escape God, what's he going to do? There I'll command, verse 3, the serpent to bite you down there. You're not going to get away from me. You can't escape me. There's nowhere to hide when judgment is coming. I don't know whether you're into disaster movies uh, in your house. Sometimes they can be fun to escape the, the real world. The most recent one I saw was called Don't Look Up. Anyone see Don't Look Up on Netflix? Got this crazy disaster movie about a comet flying in and uh, playing on the, the social media impact that's going on. These two nutty scientists travelling the world, going into studios, putting it all on social media. There's disaster coming, disaster coming, engage with us. And no one wants to listen. They think they're crazy. And of course disaster comes. And when disaster comes, there is nowhere to hide. Now that's just a joke. That's just a joke. Sorry, bye-bye. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, it's been a, thank you. Bye. If we're playing hide-and-seek from God, you'll never win. Maybe you're here today, you think, oh, I'll come to church, hear God's word, sing. Place to hide it. It's a dreadful place to hide from God. There'll be nowhere to hide that day. Uh, because the Lord Almighty will act. That's what we see next, verses 5 and 6. Uh, this is a very interesting little break from the vision of judgment that's coming. Uh, we suddenly get God grabbing the microphone and telling us about himself. The Lord, the Lord Almighty. He touches the earth and it melts. And all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens. He sets its foundations on the earth. He calls the water the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Three times in, if you're taking notes, chapter 4 verse 13 Chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, God has revealed himself as the mighty God. Of course you can't hide from him. He is the mighty Lord, the Lord of the armies, the the strong one, the unique soul king of the world. And at that point, you can't just rely on your past. If you're trusting in, oh yeah, in the past I knew God, in the past God did stuff for me, surely I'll be okay in the future. I think often the time, we do think that way, don't we? We think, I'm bound to be okay with God because I can remember something happened to me in my past. It's today that matters. Have a look at the way Israel might have reflected on what they were so proud of. They were so proud. They're the people in the past. God rescued them out of Egypt. Verse 7. Are you not Israelites? The same to me as the Cushites. That's people from Ethiopia, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up out of Egypt? The Philistines from Kafta and the Arameans from Kerr. That is a bizarre verse. That is telling us that, and we don't really know much about this in other parts of the Bible, but we've got to take this word for what it says. And it's saying that God has, in some sense, done other exoduses for other people, which we don't really know much about. But you're not the first people for God to have done something amazing with in the past. That's what he's saying to Israel. They were relying on the fact, oh, you've rescued us from Egypt. Well, great. Well, he's also rescued Philistines and taken them from Kafta. He's taken Arameans from Kerr. Yeah, yeah, sure, he's done that. How are you doing today? Don't talk to me about the past. But very often, when we think about the church of the future, what will the church be like in the future? Does the church have a future? We think, well, we've got a great past. That's good. How are we doing today? Do we love the Lord today? Are we turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus today? Today is the day of salvation. It's nothing to do with the past. 
It may be that you've got an amazing story in your past. And I'm, I'm really pleased. And they are good things to, to rejoice in. But don't rely on and lean on that one thing years and years and years ago. Yeah, how are you doing today? Are you faithful with the Lord today? Or are you a bit complacent today? Of course I'm okay because I've got a bit of a story from years ago. No, it's all about today. It's about today. And then we get verses 8 to 10, which are some transition verses, because at this point we're told that the Lord will sift his people. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the kingdom of, on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Total devastation, although not total. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations. So as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake us or meet us. Those who are very complacent. We're fine. We're part of the external people of God. We're bound to be okay. No. God's going to get out of his sieve. And, it, and, and the, the, the people of God are going to be in the sieve and it's going to get a good shaking, shaking, shaking. And the real grain will come through and produce fruit, but there'll be pebbles inside. They'll be cast out. What a picture. What a picture. Let me try and illustrate that because sometimes people get a bit confused here. He says, well, how are we to understand God's people? Let me, I've got a couple of images which might help. Imagine that big circle represents Israel. That's the, the, the visible church, if you like, of Israel. The covenant people of God. The people who, who, who gather together, who heard the Ten Commandments, who read the law, etc. That's the covenant people of God. And, and you can look at them on the outside, a bit like a donut. There's just this kind of large, amorphous group of individuals. But inside that external group, there is the, the hidden jam of the true Israel Inside the outer dough, okay? You can't see the jam, you can just see the external. But within that, there are actual individuals who have a relationship with God, who've trusted in God to save them, who've turned around from living life their way. And the reason I say that is because Paul says that in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Not all Israel are Israel. And this is where um, historically Christians have talked about a remnant, a kind of a little subset, not necessarily little, but a subset of the whole who God is in the business of rescuing. And uh, while things are different in the new covenant, this stage in the history of, of God's dealing with his people, there's a sense in which it's a bit similar today. Yeah, there is such a thing as the external people of God, people who would call themselves believers, professing Christians, the, the, the professing Christian church, and people are gathering around the country, around the world, externally doing the business, looking the part. Sadly, not all of them have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not all of them have turned away from their sin and put their trust in Jesus to save them. But within that wider number, there is a subset of those who have who love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind and strength, are loving their neighbours, themselves, who are grieving over when they sin and are coming back repeatedly, day after day, repenting and believing and trusting in Jesus for grace. And uh, the fact is we need to have our eyes open to the reality that it's possible to be part of that external people of God, to wear the right things, to know when to stand and sit and to leave the service and to say the right kind of thing. We know the way around. We know the phrases. Do we know him today? Do we love him today? 
Point one, be warned of God's devastating judgment. He'll find us, he'll, he'll sieve us. But there's a second point, and it's an amazing point, the climax of the book of Amos. Be amazed at God's abundant mercy. Be amazed at God's abundant mercy. This is verses 11 through to verse 15. There's been loads of judgment, but this is the great, great shining light when we come out of the tunnels into the glorious sunshine of God's love and his mercy. What do we see? We see a new Israel will be restored. Have a look down in verse 11. I will restore David's fallen shelter. I'll repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and they and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. And you think about this quite carefully. The old covenant people of God were called to be a light to the nations, to bless the nations of the world. And occasionally they did a bit of that. And the nations came to them and saw how God was blessing them. So there's a, a time in the Old Testament where King Solomon was the great leader of the people and uh, built the temple and a great palace. And all the world comes to see how amazing it is to have God as number one in your life. And this woman comes to him and says, you're an amazing, um, you've got an amazing God because of what he's doing for you. And he says to her, who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba? And it turns out she is the Queen of Sheba. She's come to see him and to say how amazing God is for what you've done. Anyway, that was in a small way what God was doing, but really God's people failed to be the light of the nations and to bless the world around. And as a result of their failure, they're cast out eventually from his presence and exiled, and they never fully returned. This is the Old Testament people of God, particularly in the north. Uh, And yet, there's a promise here. Can you see that? I'll restore David's fallen shelter. Interestingly, it doesn't say uh, his fallen uh, temple, but... His, uh, his fallen shelter. Actually, literally, it's the tabernacle word, which is the word for the tent that was moving around with the people of God as they were travelling through the wilderness. They were rescued from Egypt, wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud were guiding them all the way through their journey before heading over the Jordan. And they had a temple. Well, they didn't have a temple. They had a tabernacle. A shelter where God dwelt his presence. But in these Visions of destruction, that temple has crashed down, the the presence of God has gone, never to be returned, only there is a return. What are we to expect of the return of God's blessing to Israel? There's a big question. It's a question that exercises Christians up and down the land and throughout history they've wrestled with. What is God's purpose for Israel? It feeds into everything from theological debate to Um, geopolitical foreign policy and what takes place with the nation of Israel and the whole Zionist movement as well as a whole range of different kinds of anti-Semitic discussions that we see sadly happening throughout our our day and our age. How are we to understand God's purposes for Israel? And I have to say, Amos chapter 9 speaks into this brilliantly, really powerfully. And the way I'll demonstrate that is by saying, please put one paw in Amos 9 and flick over to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And uh, we're going to see... What, to, how do we understand the future of Israel from these verses? Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to read from verse 12. Have a look down. And we're on page 1110 in our Turquoise Church Bibles. 
What's it mean that Israel will be restored, renewed, will possess the nations? So this is taking place in the first century. The church has just begun. It's still a baby form. God has given his, uh, the Lord Jesus has given the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is an early council, a synod, if you like, of uh, the apostles in Jerusalem working through some key questions, particularly how do we welcome into the people of God those who are Gentiles from other nations? What do we do for them? This is what we read. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. Quotes. And now he's quoting Amos chapter 9. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Things known from long ago. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Let me try and illustrate what this means. How does David's fallen tent get restored? How uh, does Israel, quote-unquote, possess the nations? I think it happens as God rebuilds the people of God, not around one particular nation on earth but in the new kingdom of the church we are his people we are his bride a treasured possession here the people of God so you can see in that little diagram the scattered uh, nations the Jews scattered amongst the Gentiles away from where they once were and then in Christ they are brought in brought together People from very religious backgrounds who understood their way around church stand up, sit down, sing this, be quiet here And then people who have no idea whatsoever, have never walked in a church building, but have heard of Jesus and want to live for him and love him. And are filled with his spirit. Gentiles, in other words. Maybe many of us here today welcomed into his family. And as a result of being brought into his family, we, the new people of God, are called to be a light to the nations. To go out, fill with his spirit, to be the salt and light, the hands and feet of Jesus, to be the light of the world, as Jesus called Israel to be. They failed. He said, I'm going to be the light of the world. And if you join yourself with me by faith and become part of my people, we will be the light of the world together. A city on a hill shining bright so that people would see Jesus. Not me, but him. A new Israel will be restored. And this new Israel will be a people made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and background. Which means, maybe you're here today and you think, look, do I really belong here? Don't know when to stand up or sit down or sing or be quiet. Don't know my way around church. Friends, if you're here because of Jesus, you are so welcome. You, you can have mucked up your life. You could have received a pretty tough set of cards from the way... Other people before you played their hand, but you're you and you're welcome to receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, he will welcome you to his family and he will call you to be part of his people. 
to be a light to the nations. Friends, I'm so sorry if you've ever felt like an outsider at Highfields. It's possible because there are so many new people coming all the time, and uh, as well as a load of people who've been here for a long time. And sometimes we can feel like everyone knows each other and I don't know anyone. Do I really belong? You are absolutely welcome here. If Christ has welcomed you, my goodness me, we need to, we love to welcome you too. To be part of this new Israel, called to be the people God urges to welcome others into his family. So that's the first lesson. The first glorious application, welcome into the church. Second application is new blessings will be enjoyed. New blessings will be enjoyed. And here we're back in Amos, so you can bounce back to Amos chapter 9. And this is our closing little section, verses 13 to 15. The days are coming, declares the Lord. So this is the future, according to Amos, and this is the present now, according to us. Well, technically, it's what we call the now and the not yet. Some of this stuff has been totally fulfilled now. Others of it will come one day when Jesus returns. Have a look down. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman, the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord God. New wine. Bountiful supply. Such that so much is coming that the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman. Just as you're sowing seeds, it's growing up again and it needs to be harvested. You You can't get on top of the growth quickly enough. It's just a bewildering amount of blessing is coming one day. And that day is now. (laughs) Have you ever wondered, when Jesus arrived on the scene, he wanted to demonstrate that the king had finally come, the Messiah is here. How does he demonstrate that he truly is the promised Messiah? What's his first miracle? The one that says the Messiah has come. He could have done anything, first of all. He could have opened someone's eyes. He did loads of those kind of miracles. He could have healed someone's broken body. He did loads of that. He could have raised someone from the dead. He did loads of that as well. His very first miracle, John chapter 2, he goes to a wedding where they run out of wine and he makes bountiful supplies of new wine. Six enormous stone jars, wine flowing. The nicest wine you've ever had in your life. Like, why on earth does he do that? I thought he'd come to just fix our brokenness. He has done. I thought he'd come to teach and speak with authority into our world of confusion. He absolutely has done. I thought he came to to bring life to dead. He has done. He has come to not just bring mere life, but abundant life, celebratory life, new wine kind of life. I've come, he said in John 10.10, that they may have life and have it to the full, the best possible life, the most wonderful life you can know is knowing Jesus right now. He's not the kind of God who wants to fob you off with a half-baked version of life. He doesn't say, look, let me take you out for a meal, I'll take you to Miller and Carter and insist you have a salad. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that like a friend of mine. Uh, he's going to give you the best... He's going to give you the best, the best food you could possibly know. The best wine will flow. And then he's going to say, you come to know me, join me by faith, And then I'll share bread and wine with you repeatedly. The one thing you need to keep drinking if you follow Jesus is wine. Every time you share bread and wine, remembering his body broken, his blood shed for me. And he says, come and drink. 
as a foretaste of what will happen one day. This is all just a picture of what will happen one day where, where bounty and blessing and no more pain and no more regret and shame and no more bitter memories and no more disappointments and death and emptiness will be there but a place of bounty and endless joy that will come one day when Jesus returns. He gives us a little taste of it now as he says, cling fast to me until then and then just you wait. We began by asking the question, what is the future of the church? Does the church, does the people of God have a future? I want to Kind of be a bit more specific, because that's quite a good abstract question. Here's the more specific question. Do you have a future with God? The, the chances are that many of us know and love Jesus Christ. We've turned from living for ourselves. We've said, sorry for what I've done. Thank you for what you've done. Please change me. That's what you need to do in order to be part of God's people. Sorry for what I've done. Thank you for what you've done. Please change me. Maybe you have done that. I guess many of us have. I hope we're clinging fast to what he's done for us and looking forward to the day when we see him face to face. Maybe you've been coming for the last uh, few weeks, a friend's brought you along, intrigued. The offer is there for you to say, sorry for what I've done. Thank you for what you've done. Please change me. Sorry for the way I've, I've closed my ears to your word. I've, I've lived in a hypocritical way. I've lived in a complacent way. You know, it'd be very easy for us to kind of wag our fingers out there at all, the, all those bad things that go on in other church. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about us. You know, you know, there are ways in which we in our lives have turned away. We need to come back. I invite you to come back and say, sorry Lord for what I've done. <laughs> Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. The gift of your spirit. Please change me. He will change you. And for those of us who, are, who, who, who have a memory of God's grace in our lives, uh, yeah, I look back and once upon a time this meant something to me. Now I'm kind of wandering away. Be warned. It's not a safe place to be. can't rely on the past. We rely on grace for the future and for today. He's a God of grace. He loves to give us grace. He'll give it to you in abundance now in anticipation of just the most super abundant display of grace he wants to give you one day when you see him. I urge you to come back to him. He'd have you back in a heartbeat. Let's have a moment of quietness and then we're going to pray. You might want to think about all the different lessons that God has been saying to you over the course of the last couple of months through Amos and pray just in the quietness and I'll I'll give you a moment in the quietness and say, Lord, teach me these lessons. I don't want to be complacent. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be concerned about the external. I want to be very concerned about my inner life. Please, Lord, have your way with me. May I come back to you. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. 
Thank you for the mercy that is found in your warnings. You long for us to let go of the grip that sin has on us. Lord, help us to be free from that. We don't want to keep walking in a path away from you. Thank you for your mercy that is seen in this beautiful offer of abundant blessing. Now, yes, but what a future awaits. Lord, we pray you forgive us for the times when we've seen knowing you and relationship with you as a, as a pretty light thing, a pretty meagre thing. Certainly not the life in abundance that you, you offer in Jesus. Lord, forgive us for when we've perhaps spoken of relationship with you in a, in, a, in a cold way. And we've not given the impression that knowing you turns our lives around. Please help us to be those who face the ups and downs of life with a certain hope that you're with us, you love us, you've forgiven us for the past, you give us purpose for the future and you're with us right now. Help us, Lord, to be those people. Show us where we need to change. Thank you for your grace that helps us change. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.